Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show. I'm your host, Kanae Corner, National Certified Counselor and the world's number one clinical hypnotherapist specializing in stress management for healthcare professionals who want to turn a life of stress into a life of meaning and help their patients do the same. Tune in each week. I'll show you how to respond to yourself first. So, are you ready to let go of your stress? Well, let's get into today's show. Hey there, my crosspos. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you and welcome back to another episode of the Money and Meaning Podcast. We have a great show today and today as we are recording is the inauguration. I'll try not to get too political because it's totally not my thing, politics, but I have to talk about it. And who but Shannon Roar Phillips to talk about it with? I'm so excited that I have her here. So let me tell you about her. So Shannon Roar Phillips is a social entrepreneur with three decades of experience in public and private sector collaboration, fundraising, and diversity, equity, and inclusion work in the healthcare, education, and business spaces. So Shannon created the Bridge Builders Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Training Program to equip leaders and businesses with results-driven solutions. Shannon is also the founder and CEO of the Voice and Visibility Women's Summit in Sarasota, Florida, usually, but this time is virtual. So she set out on a mission to elevate the voices of diverse women. And boy, is she doing that. And that's why she's on the show today. And that's a big part of what we're going to talk about. So please, guys, join me in welcoming our guest today, Shannon War Phillips. Hey, Shannon. Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so psyched to be here. I know we don't get to hang out enough, so I'm glad we get to hang out today. Me too. I always start every episode with the question, what is your idea of prosperity? Okay, so truth teller here. On my run this morning, I was thinking about that. I thought I have the good fortune of spending time with Kane, and she she wanted me to think about my definition of prosperity. And honestly, the, the first thing that came to mind, Kane, is relationship capital. Like prosperity to me is obviously wealth and abundance, but it also in my world is about like relationship capital, the richness of really healthy, solid relationships. Yes. Mm -hmm. I can go with you on that, especially when you think about like how we met. And I guess we can tell the audience, I think we have the same version. You know how some people are like, oh, my version of the story, like my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) You tell them how we met and then we can talk about it. Because I think that's where you and I connected was this relationship alignment authenticity world. Yeah. So as I remember it, I, my mom introduced me to you. She saw your advertising on Facebook. You're, you're going to have a conversation with, is it Jax? Was that his oh, name? Yeah. That's right. With Dax. Yeah. Dax. Yeah. So you're going to have a conversation with Dax. It's going to be on Facebook, kind of like a watch party. And so she for- forwarded that to me and she's like, you probably want to be here. And I was like, oh yeah, I definitely want to be there. So I was there and I watched it and I was like, yes, this woman is awesome. However, I'm a little afraid for her because there's something she needs to say that she really can't be the person to say it. And I can see that she's so fluent in this conversation and I want her to be able to say it. So I want to 
combined with her, you know, like combined with her. So I can say the things that she can't say that really need to be said. And she's so fluent that she might say them. And I don't want anybody to, I want to protect her. Like I want her to be able to speak and nobody mess with her. Like, this is my girl. She is saying the right stuff. And so I felt that right away. I was like, oh my gosh, she's who, who is this beautiful person commenting as we're live and then the second you and I got on the phone together, when we realized like, okay, we need to know each other, that yeah. authenticity, can I, I was like, oh yeah, come in, come into my space. Let's do stuff. Let's do it. Elevate together. But we should tell your listeners. So that segment I did with Dax that you saw, we were talking about, he wrote a letter that was published in the Atlantic, maybe even in the post, a letter to white men. So Dax is a black man from Washington, DC. He's a journalist. He's a strong advocate trainer for racial equity. And I was fascinated with this letter he wrote to it's the Dear White Men. Anyhow, we can link it to your listeners in some way, but I wanted to interview him. I wanted to talk about race and equity. And I'm a white woman. I've done a lot of work cross-culturally as a social worker in my early career, lived in different spaces. My husband's Jamaican-American. I'm raising biracial kids. And so Kanae and my mother-in-law are the two biggest angels on my shoulder that are like, yeah, you know, a lot of white women are afraid to talk about race or they're afraid to talk about white privilege and and you don't. And so they are also a little bit scared for me sometimes. So, <laughs> so but I got to tell you, you know, be more afraid of the white women. Like for people that are rough on me, it's much more white women. Women of color are fine to me. So. I know. <laughs> My, my white ladies, I can get in the ring with them. Trust me. <laughs> no, it's, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. And I just said this this morning. It's like, black people, we see you. Like, we see you. Whether you say, oh, I'm not racist. You don't have to say you're not racist. We know you're not, or if you are, or if you're not. <laughs> the energy that you give off, will, we will know. So you're right. When you're out there doing your work, other black women are going to see who you really are, what you're really doing. And like you said, you're raising, you're re- raising these mixed race mm-hmm. babies, you know, and to some people, they're going to be black babies. Mm-hmm. So you're in it with us. <laughs> so. I've always felt that I have always felt so warmly loved and embraced in the black community and in the Latinx community. And I think it goes back to my early years as a social worker, and the style of vulnerability that I always brought to my work, authenticity, right? So I'll never forget, I, I ran a homeless shelter in Washington, D.C. a long time ago. These two women that had been living there who were so phenomenal, they lived there for about three months, came in one day and said, "Miss Shannon, we got, can we talk to you? And I thought, okay, we sure. There could, you know, you, live in, you work in a homeless shelter, there's always curveballs that these women have to manage. And they sat me down and they were like, we're just so worried about you. You you know, are you okay? And you seem a little stressed out. And I thought, okay, this is one of those. And I've had so many moments <laughs> in my career, Kanae, where I'm like, wow, the, the faith and fortitude and trust that I've had in professional interracial ex- uh, relationships has been 99.9% positive. And this is where I would want white people to listen, like, because I just show up as myself, right? Which is perfectly mm-hmm. flawed, flawed and damaged and strong and passionate and apologetic if I mess up. And so that has been for me the guiding principle and also the work, right? So the work as a social worker is so intense. The work in education is so intense. And when, in my experience, communities of color see you actually doing the work and not talking about it, just do the work there's an immediate respect. 
to your point, back when we were doing that segment, again, and, and entering this new era for me in the past year, talking about race and doing white racial identity classes with white people, these are some of the points I try to share, which is whites on whites are pretty brutal, as we've all seen. We need to spend a little time there, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics of power and that play out within this this work. And so when you came into my world and were tuned into what Dax and I were doing, but also like on a more spiritual level, I think that felt really awesome. And I just keep feeling like I need to thank you for showing up the way you did and the way you're you are. welcome. Oh, you're welcome. My, my pleasure. Absolutely. I wanted to go back to something you, you talked about and, and, and I talked about in your bio and that is that diversity training. Now you don't probably know this about me, but I am not usually a big fan of diversity training. Mm-hmm. I, ugh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, I it's like, yeah, I'm a big fan of you and I'm a big fan of the work you do, but not of that industry, that diversity training industry, because one of the things you, what you have and what you do, it really can't be taught, so to speak. It is some programming, like racism is programming, right? Prejudice is programming. So some of it is programmed, but it's not a step-by-step. Okay. Now when you greet a black person, you greet them like this, check. You did a great job. You know, okay. Now to the next thing, when you walk away from them, when you say goodbye, you say goodbye like this. Great job. Good. You know, you're not training them like etiquette school. And so, but the way that you do it is different. So I wanted to talk a little bit about like your philosophy around diversity, equity, inclusion, and you know, this, this training work. Well, I, yeah, I'm grateful you asked because I, I do think it's influenced by those early years as a social worker. And the, the thing that's been a thread through my whole career is the power of people's stories, right? And the uniqueness of people's stories and where our pain points are. And, and so my work has been such a tremendous instructor for me on racial and gender equity, right? Like how strong women are, how fierce they are, how, how kind of undervalued and clearly underpaid we are at time. And so when I bring the Bridge Builders program to, and now I mostly do groups, right? So I'm working with nonprofit leaders. I'm working with those that are trying to gain more proficiency. And in all honesty, the segment that I, the niche I have, if you will, is inviting what I call my first time or newly emerging white folks who are kind of recognizing, wow, the blinders that I've had on or the privilege, whatever we want to call it, are are completely inequitable. They're they're having some sort of aha moment, right? So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and my process is very much like I want to know your story. So I take my participants through some very basic terminology. I take them through a little bit of, you know, how historically looking at the systems of oppression, right? Healthcare, education, finance, and looking at all these different structural ways that there was such legitimized discrimination, oppression, et cetera. And then, and I do some empathy building exercises, um, but then I flip the lens and I say, now it's time to talk about each of, each of you and our whiteness. I want to know your whiteness story. I want to know your backstory. And I do these kind of exercises where they have to compress 
describing their physical traits to me, their ethnic background, their family of origin, cultural traditions that they do or don't connect with. And I make them do like a short little snippet. And, And this is my intention to help them recognize that as the new majority of America becomes more diverse, we know multicultural, multiracial, Latino community, Asian communities growing. These numbers are growing. And so white people, I, I have to appeal to their sense of like, you you still belong in this fabric, right? You do, you're here, you've been here, but there's a change in America. And you need to kind of get more in touch with your own story and where your own biases are. We all have them. And I think they feel relaxed because I say to them, I'm a white woman. I've been doing this work. I'm married to a black man and I make mistakes all the time. And so I introduce this failure and forgiveness model as the path towards strengthening interracial relationships. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so many things you said right there. One, remind me to tell you the story about mm-hmm. making mistakes. I make mistakes too. I'm, I was about to say married. We're not married yet, but I'm with a, a multiracial black he's a black man but his he's black and white and so there's some things that i even say as a black woman and to a multiracial man that are like don't say it like he'll see me about to say it and i'm like oh. so i'll tell you that story in just a second yeah. but i wanted i wanted to tell you this story because of something you said like you know white people feeling like oh now they're pushed out they're not part of the group and mm-hmm. i was at a diversity training once with a company that i was working with and they were having us break up into groups and there was this one group and everybody in the group was quote unquote diverse except for this one man who was a white male and so i see the look on his face and he kind of doesn't want to be part of the group and so i say to him let's just say his name was dan i'm like dan what's wrong like come on like get in here and he's like well everybody's diverse except for me and i was like dan that's the definition of diverse you are diverse to me that's what makes this group diverse is that you're different from us and we're different from you And it's so, but it's such a good point because Dan's not used to being in the minority, right? So <laughs> this is a whole new thing. Like the white guys and the white women being in the minority, being decentered. These are very new experiences. So in my, I try to say, Kanae, I'm here to like pull you into a space of compassion and I, and I can relate, but I'm also going to like slap us around a little like, okay, <laughs> you know, we got it. We got to do better. And so the do's and the don'ts are honestly those concrete. I don't ever want this term and this. And when you try, you're going to fail. I start right out of the gates. The real, not a great marketing tool, but I say, welcome, welcome, welcome. And we do our intro. And I say, now here's, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news, you're going to mess up at this all the time. And if you don't, you're not trying hard enough and you're not being authentic to who you are. But the most powerful thing, and in my experience, I tell them, I think the black community is the most forgiving community on the planet. So you authentically mess up, you look them in the eye and you own it. And you say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I I'm sorry. I used the wrong word. I'm sorry. And then just stop talking, which is also yes. hard for white people to do. Guilty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the story I was going to tell you. So early on in our relationship, I was going to ask this question and I guess I got it out, but kind of didn't get it out. So I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember thinking, oh, so I was saying to Jason, I was like, so do you think that that's your 
what I was about to say, like, that's your white side yes. that yeah, makes yeah, you yeah. do that. Yeah. Is that the white in you? I know. I, look, yeah. I know. You have a lot of these conversations. How did he take it? How did he respond? He was like, before I could get all the words out, he was like, don't say it. My teenagers will sometimes be like, oh, okay. Um, And they're still playing around with their, you know, their identity as well. But that is so funny. It is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we joke about it. We joke about it. And I'm a a really crass, like really bold. I say what's on my mind kind of person. So he's used to that with me. And then, but he'll tell me like, don't say that to, you know, a mixed race person that that, that's hurtful. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, he can take it. Right, right. Well, it's fascinating you say that because it's true. I'm the same way, first of all, a little bold and I'll say things. And then the kids but, you know, what's raising multiracial kids, especially in the last year we've had just to like give you, you know, you and I talk about how serious the tone of racial tensions in this country are. And I live down here in the South. My kids were getting like a front row seat to the different the extremism, right, of different um, philosophies, et cetera. And they, my kids, I was like, Neil, they are so, they're so practical. They're so logical. They, they really blew us away in how a few things that I think all of us can learn from. Number one was that if people are nice to me, they're my friends. And so if they choose to vote for somebody or their family's voting for someone, but they're nice to me, they're my friends, right? Right. And I was like, yep, that's beautiful. And, and, and then they would further go on and say, and if they're my friends, I'm going to defend them when people attack them or their ideology because they're good people. And I thought, gosh, that's just so simple. But, and, you know, they would, they would understand kind of the tension points in the white experience and in the black experience and relate to elements of them both but stay right in this moderate center where I said, it's just so sense. It's just so sensible, right. That they would feel and relate, but also come back to this middle ground of yeah, but yeah, but. And so it was just, but it wasn't without it's obviously growing pains and hardship, but it makes us as a family every day, when we look at navigating, even in our own immediate family, a lot of different political ideologies and, and, and whatnot, that going back to those relationships and that capital and how we treat each other, like, again, just to, from where we started, like, for me, that's prosperity. Like, we yeah. love these family members. Maybe they voted differently. Maybe they're having commentary that we just need to not even read on social media, but we love who they are and how they treat us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Doesn't it feel like that kind of got lost and has been lost in the dialogue, not just about diversity, but just like in America, like just be nice to each other. But it got so dangerously polarizing, dangerously polarizing. Yep, you did. And I get what your children are saying, because that's who I am. And earlier, kind of how I got on this racial equity, diversity, relations, none of that is my platform. I talk Mm -hmm. about love and money, right? So I don't really talk about race, but somehow I posted about it once. And since I did, I've been having this conversation over and over and over again. But I also told my white friends, you know, if you get in a jam, if something Mm -hmm. happens, come to me, call, call me. Mm -hmm. Like, 
don't say anything. Don't say anything. Like, talk to me. And then I'm going to tell you, oh, no, don't you dare say that. Or I'm going to say, yes, say that, that, you know, I get it, that that will help. Because I don't care if they say the wrong words. I don't care if they make a mistake. I don't care if they vote for somebody I don't vote for. Like, I had a friend who stopped being my friend because I couldn't understand that she was a Trump supporter. And I told her, I don't care that you support Trump. I don't care that you switched over to becoming a Republican. That doesn't matter to me. I have fun when I hang out with you. You you know, we we play tennis together. Don't ask, don't judge me for being a Democrat. And I'm not going to judge you for being a Republican. I'm sorry. Like, don't ask me to prove to you. Because she's like, well, why are you a Democrat? And tell me what the Democrats have done for, you know, Black people. And like, she wants to quit me on. And I'm like, first of all, like I said in the beginning of this episode, I'm not even that political. I mm-hmm. I vote because it's my right and my privilege. My People fought for me to vote. Hell yeah, I'm going to vote. And I know that in, on a local level, it really counts yes. for me to vote right here in my community. But on a federal level and you know nationally, I'm going to vote because I have some, my little tiny, little tiny vote does make sense. And if I didn't vote this time, just so much more could have happened. If if everybody thought, well, my vote doesn't count, then we wouldn't be able to make move the needle and make changes the way we did. So all of that is why I vote, not because I'm political, not because I'm no. Democrat or Republican. No, I get no. it. Yeah, I get it. And I share it because, you know, I, I still think at the end of the day, and, you know, I believe in like this bipartisan tension when and and not to romanticize any era because every era has had its challenges and but but they're bipartisan tension that doesn't become destructive and dangerous it just becomes civic disagreement Mm -hmm. and i think part of again bringing it back to today the day that you and i are doing this segment i'm watching president bush walk in with the obamas and hug them i'm watching mitch mcconnell and the bidens and kamala obviously just it's it's such a beautiful sight and Pence is there to see this mixed political group um, return back to some civil um, rituals and whatnot. So I, I just more try to extract from my family. And I'm like you, I'm much more in the business sector these days. And I love working with Republicans and Democrats. Trust me, like in the business, mm-hmm. space, there's not a lot of room for this discussion. But- <laughs> You know, but I do, I do believe that I, I really have to toe the line at like civility and kindness. And so I, I'm sure you're the same way, Kenny. Like I, yeah. I respect everyone's opinions, but I don't want to have you in my personal world or even my professional if there's like rhetoric that isn't civil and respectful. And so my hope as you and I were getting on, I said, but gee, maybe this is kind of a new chapter. It's change, it's symbolism, it's Kamala in the White House, which is unbelievable and such a big deal, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Um, I think maybe I just, I feel more hopeful. And I know that even, so so there's the political journey, but then you and I love talking, like you said, about race and money and prosperity, because that's where equality lives, like how it plays yes. out today for us. The money thing yes. is big, right? Yeah. It is. It is. And and the love, you know, you, you, yeah. you touched on the love and in, in the way that your children, to me, described what their experience is. It really boils down to love. Look, I love this person and I'm going to treat them with the love that I would want to be treated with because that's what it all boils down to. And any money conversation really goes back 
to love too. All, all the things we do, when you get money, it's usually because you want to be loved. Now, one on one side or the other, it could be on the greed side, you want to buy your love, or it could be on the meaning side, you want to do things to, you know, show, show your love. Right. But it really all boils back down to love. And that's why I love. So for me, this is where I find your framework fascinating and so refreshing. Because as a social entrepreneur in the early days, I would have told you my work was more anti-poverty, right? Like in social work, running the homeless shelter. But I, I met with thousands of women, children, and families who just were living in hard times. Some of them came from hard times, intergenerational poverty. Others had external events that like flipped their world upside down. And that common denominator was lack of access to money, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was a big part of my career. Those stories like live in my soul. And then as I went into the business space and started looking at gender equity and this new kind of economic empowerment of women and how when women have more control over their money and have money, they don't feel as victimized. They don't stay in relationships that aren't healthy for them. They can change and move their scenario. So the freedom that comes with money became a new part of women in business. And and even the theme really of my summit is this kind of economic empowerment and how listening and learning from women's stories who have embraced and given themselves permission to seek wealth. And I know this is an area yes. to focus on. So, <laughs> yeah. But like, why, why do we still have so many women who don't feel like they have permission to, to go after wealth? Yes. Oh right? my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's taboo. Be- and, and part of it is because money is masculine. Like it has, it's society teaches us that that go 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 get the money that's like a masculine trait and if you're a woman you're supposed to be more on the meaning or you stay home with the kids you do all the loving sweet nurturing things but you don't do the money things and money has the same energy money can be nurturing as just as cooking dinner can be nurturing you know but but we've been told that you know, kind of creating wealth is masculine and women, you're just supposed to marry into wealth. Hopefully somebody who's wealthy loves you and then lucky you, now you have wealth as well. Yeah, I I think that's that's the bullseye, Kanae. And so then I look at evolving from this anti-poverty kind of person and and advocate, if you will, to like a pro-wealth building, especially looking at racial equity. When you look at all the wage gaps and, you know, indigenous, Latin and black women are so underrepresented on the upper echelon of the wage gap, which is still horrible for white women. Asian women are almost on par with white men. So I started looking that data because I am a data geek. And I was like, gosh, you know, this is true geographically across the country. And so part of this new narrative, part of promoting female leadership and finding women who have been successful in business, or it's why Kamala is such a big deal today, women who have been bold enough and given themselves permission to be leaders and to disrupt the narrative, like, you know, Kamala doesn't have kids, she chose a career in politics and has stayed very, very focused on that. We rarely question men's devotion to their Mm. leadership track. And so this new day for women, but I also see it as a both and. How can I, and I'm I'm a mother, how can I put my kids first, my family first, and make certain career sacrifices because they're right for my family and also embrace 
traits like seeking wealth and success for my company and and looking at how to elevate other women along the way. So this, yeah. Let's answer that. Let's answer that. Because I think that other women are asking that same question because men are allowed to do it. You can seek wealth. You can, you know, be a father. You can be a husband. Men can do all the things. And the reason is because men will find harmony. Like they're unapologetic about whatever it is that they're leaning into. So if they're leaning into work, they lean into work. If they lean into their kids, they lean into their kids. When they go to work and they have to go do something for their kids, they don't go, please excuse me, boss. I'm going to have to go do something for my... They're like, no, my kids basketball game. I'm going to my kids basketball game. When it's time to go to work, they're like, hey kids, going to work. See you soon. You know, it's like they're unapologetic for it. Women, we feel so guilty and so ashamed that we want any of these things. If we're at work, we're like, oh, I should probably be with my kids. Kids. When we're at kids, we should, oh, I should probably be at work. You know, when we're with our friends, we're like, oh, we should probably be with our man. When we're with our or significant other, let me say that. When we're with our significant yeah. other, we're like, oh, I should probably be with my girls. You know, it's like we we feel guilty about wherever we're not instead of being fully present with where we are, leaning into that, finding harmony, not balance. I'm not going to spend 50% of my time with this and 50% of my time at that. No, I'm going to spend 10% here, 5% there, 20% here, 30% there. And that formula is going to make up who I am as a person right now. Because that could change next year. That could change next month. And And I don't want to be held to that. And it's not going to look like your friends, your neighbors. And we have to let them you can commune with other women and we should commune because we will support each other and you got to pick those women who lift you up. However, don't fall in the trap that, okay, that one has a nanny and I'm at home. That one has a career. Mm. That one makes twice the money. So don't do that unless you're actually looking for traits that inspire you. Because yeah. I, I, and I've been guilty of that in my lifetime, obviously. Like I've done a lot of work to say, you know what, you're your the biggest thing you can give to this universe is to be the best mom possible, the best partner possible, and the best professional possible. And every single day, I have to balance out and find that harmony for myself, right? So today, it's like, Neil, you go, I'm going to be on Kanae's podcast, you take the kids to school, I got to go for a jog this morning, then I got a two hour meeting, you know, I structure like, like most working and busy women, different parts of my day, different parts of my week, different parts of my year based on what the driver is at the time. If I have a sick kid, cancel my week. I don't care what anybody says and how disappointed they are. I want to be the one that's home with my babies. (laughs) And so, So these are the kind of things that I think as women, where we may have been comparing ourselves even to men in the workplace, we need to stop. Like the new the new fierce female leader is like, this is my truth and reality. This is my story. But also we're, we're all asset based. We're not victims. So if, mm-hmm. we have, if we have a challenge in our childcare or our pay and our salary, we are not going to be victimized by it. We're going to make choices. We're going to make Absolutely. choices. And that's where yeah. the, and the truth is back to what I've seen, especially when I've seen so many in the philanthropy world, the wealthy women were fascinating. I was studying these, I mean, we're talking mega wealth, Kine, some of these very powerful women I had uh, access with because I was doing some fundraising projects with them, but they don't apologize for putting themselves first. And they also, <laughs> uh, you know, they, there's such a different tone and their wealth has allowed them to do great things for the universe, right? So mm-hmm. I get defensive when people attack the uber wealthy. I'm like, well, wait a minute, that one gave $100,000 
to this nonprofit and she volunteers every Saturday, but no one knows that because she doesn't like to brag mm-hmm. about it. So she's not all evil force. Her wealth is producing a lot of joy for the children in that, that early childhood center, right? Mm-hmm. So nothing is as cut and dry as maybe we crave it to be. Yep. I wanted to mention, so there, there's the judgment. Really what you what you are boiling this down to is the opposite of the love. It's the judgment. It's the should-haves. Like, oh, we have this standard of what it should be. And then we put that standard on other people, right? So we talked about how we look at other people and, we, and then we put that standard on us. Oh, they do this. Oh, they do that. Maybe I should be doing that too. And But we also do the other thing. Well, I do this. So other people should be doing it too. No, how you spread your love is how you spread your love. Everybody doesn't have to spread their love the same way. And earlier you t- you mentioned that Kamala doesn't have children. She's decided to serve. And and because of her work, it took her away from being a mom. But she has stepchildren. And so she's probably putting her all into being a stepmom. And, and just like me, when I was growing up, I knew I did not want to have children. I said it from like 17, 18 years old. But then when I turned 30 I or about 30, I ended up adopting. And a lot of people don't see me as a mom because my adopted daughters are was 16 years old. Well, they're like, oh, well, you didn't change diapers, you know, or oh, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. But it doesn't matter to me and to them, I'm mom. Like, no, they don't care what anybody says. That's like, that's my mom. They will go. <laughs> they will fight, you know. I know. And by the way, when you're a mama in your soul, you know it. Whether they're your birth children, yes. your your neighbors, whether you're just really more symbolically a mothering spirit, whether it's animals mm-hmm. or mothering a garden. I I see mothering mm-hmm. spiritual realm, and so those of us that are practically like you know, we gave birth or the kids in our home every day versus those that are foster moms. I mean, come on, the, yep. the universe knows mothers were everywhere. We're everywhere. Yes. Yeah. yes, absolutely. So well said. And I also wanted to go back to a statement you said, the freedom that comes with money. So there is this judgment of money. You know, we talked about that judgment or that idea. Oh, this this is the way it is. Oh, this is what you have to do in order to be a mother. But you can show up any any way and be a mother. Same thing Mm -hmm. is that freedom that comes with money. That could be anything for you. For me, it is my autonomy. I want to be able to make my own schedule. So I wouldn't necessarily take, they could pay me a million dollars a day if they were like, oh, but you have to be here from 7 a.m. to midnight and then you can leave and the four hours you have left in your life to spend the million dollars. I'm like, oh no, the money doesn't mean that. Mm-hmm. Right. Freedom, I freedom, freedom and money can go hand in hand. I completely agree. That's not <laughs> like, you know, and you and I both have that because we're entrepreneurs. We're like, okay, no one could tell me when I'm allowed to take my time off. <laughs> but, we, um, but you know, money, money can pro- provide so many opportunities. And, and so, so the heart centered opportunities, how are you helping your children, your legacy, your neighbors, your, you know, third cousins, your community. And then obviously, again, back to what you and I talked about before, like permission to enjoy other elements of wealth. Is it travel? Is it fine food? I respect all of it. I I start because I've had so much time working with really low income children and families, the flaunty part of money. I try not to judge it at all, right? Because I used to see where I live down here in Florida, 
you know, there's Maseratis in like, you know, at the, at the grocery store. So, you know, you know, good for them. I don't know that guy's story. I don't know that woman's story. So I, I think I'm more curious to understand what that symbolism of a high luxury lifestyle means for some, but I've even parked my judgment. I would have, I would have judged them in the twenties, full truth teller. I would have been like, Oh my (laughs) God, that's so flashy. I don't really, I don't do that anymore. I don't know. There's yeah. I really don't, you know, that's so true. That's so true. Jason and I are always like, we, we are part of a country club and the country club is, has levels. So you'll see some houses, you get in the country club and then there's one level, but then there's a gated community. And then there's a gated community inside the gated community. We're like us down here in Florida. Oh yeah. We, (laughs) there's different levels. Yeah. Right. So we're like, yeah. And just in here in Vegas is the same. You can, you can park next to somebody at the grocery store, Rolls Royce, you know, Mm -hmm. Lamborghini parked right next to you. And so, and we, we're the same way. We get really curious. Like, Hmm, wonder what they do or who lives in that house and you know more than judgment because we don't need it like it's not a requirement like I'll be perfectly fine if I never owned a plane like if I never own my own plane I will die a happy woman still however given the opportunity to own my own plane if they were like hey Kane, here's a plane would you like it absolutely I'd like it (laughs) make my life easier I are connected because I agree I I think the years where I was you know more broke social work salary I was not as much of a happy camper it's it's hard and so truthfully money and it and and doesn't you don't need money for all the self-care things that you and I also talk about however Mm -hmm. you do need money when the hospital bills come in or there's Mm. infrastructure issues in your home and so I think a relate people's relationship with money and how it changes through the life cycle and who which partners they're with and which professional paths they choose. I just love that this is such an important focus with your work and your practice and your clients because I think many of us change our relationship with money, right? And, yes. and we can like we can change tomorrow. And we I do think it's wise to be friendly with money because I'm a asset mm. based thinker and it's like. I was always felt like I was in the wrong room when some of the social workers and advocates were like really anti-wealthy, anti, you know, people with money. And I kept thinking, wait a minute, are we working for a nonprofit and don't, don't half of the, you know, salaries that we're getting paid come from these, do we really hit the hand that feeds us? And, and also the clients we're trying to work with, they want to be wealthy. Like we want them Mm. to be wealthy. So how money, how we all feel about it. And I think it goes back to the same thing I was telling you with those whiteness classes. You got to start with how you were raised. And you say this, how were you programmed around money mm-hmm. and your yep. identity? And yep. you got to be aware, right, Kane, before you can go to the next level of growth. Yes, exactly. And that is such a great for where I'm about to go next because you talk about that awareness. So I have this one question for you. And then I have our last question for you. And I want you to tell people how they can find you. So you talk about that awareness because earlier I said, your, your mission is to elevate the voice of diverse women. And, but if you start talking before you're aware and you're out there and you're 
saying stuff, you know, your voice is elevated before you really thought through what you're saying or doing or what's important to you, then you might make a name for yourself in a way that you really don't want to. So I want you to talk a little bit about that voice and that visibility and that awareness. And if you're going to elevate your voice, shouldn't you be clear on what you're saying and who you are? Okay. First, I love that question because I believe that we do want to elevate our voice, but your first point is the most critical. We have to be self-aware, right? We have to know who we are, what we stand for, where are our pain points? Where do we need to forgive ourselves? Where do we need to grow? Who do we need to say goodbye to? So my entire life's work has been about working with others and myself. I've done the work and continue to do the work on self-awareness. And so if you're ready and this is where I think just, you know, really differentiating a leadership voice. I, I don't think every person should strive towards leadership, and but I want them to lead in their own life, right? I don't think they need to be publicly leading or proclaiming on a big stage or going for office or trying to be a CEO. I personally am in that lane trying to close the gender gap to inspire more women to go big and to dare big. And so for me, the voice and visibility journey started, and I referenced this very briefly in my TED talk, but it re- it started at the time that I was losing my mother to Alzheimer's disease. So here I was, a mother myself, a career kind of do-gooder, if you will. And I saw my mom starting to suffer and literally lose her voice and her words as her mm-hmm. Alzheimer's progressed. And I kept thinking, well, what do I do with this wild, crazy life, this this bucket of assets and, and deficits that I have, right? And so when I thought, well, I want to get back as a social entrepreneur and make a positive impact, I want to work with groups and agencies and individuals who believe that female leadership and female economic empowerment is good. And so all of this gender and racial equity, then I, I tested the voice and visibility idea. I thought, well, let's bring a diverse group of women together. And I wanted to find women who had stories to your question, who I, I knew they knew who they were, right? So I, I select women for my voice and visibility stage. Very, I'm very careful of how I do it. I've either met them, seen them on media, have to have several meetings with them and get a sense that they know who they are and they know where they want to go. And because when I put those women on stage, and by the way, Kenea is on stage at VVWS. So you guys, you have to tune in and we've got all sorts of ways that you guys can connect, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But this year, our Voice and Visibility Women's Summit brings leaders from all different sectors to the stage and they're going to share their stories, their inspirations, but they know who they are. And that's intentional, right? And so uh, because I believe by listening to other women's stories, we can start to get inspired on crafting our own. And especially in a more authentic way, not just your pedigree or your resume. I tell people the hardest parts of your life tend to be the most interesting. And so don't gloss over them. Don't, don't stuff them away. And, you know, if you can do some work on those pain points, whether it's grief and loss, whether it's childhood issues, whether it's identity issues, whatever it is, truthfully, we all have them, get to know yourself. And so that's the stage that we, that we lay. And I know, I know our time is almost up. Did you want me to tell people a little bit about the summit or how they can? 
Yes. Tell them about the summit. And then I have our, our famous last question for you. So tell them about the summit, how they can be a part of it, how even after, like if they listen to this a month later, how they can still connect with you too. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, we got you. Our, our main website is voice and visibility summit.com. Our Instagram handle is at VVW summit and you'll see all of our links there. When you purchase a ticket, for the summit, it's good for five days. So I've got about seven hours of programs, but you can log in, watch Kenne's speech, watch Jessica McDonald's speech, or you know, women's professional soccer player. Then you can press pause, go pick up your kid in car line, log back on later that night. So you have five days to finish the program. The other cool thing is we just extended the licensing with our tech partners. So we will be offering a second round of sales from the 13th of February to the 9th of March, where people can watch Ooh. on demand. We anticipate we're on track to have well over a thousand guests. Again, this is a community where you can also create an avatar and say, I'm Sally Smith, I'm a teacher in Wisconsin, and you can put your social handles, your email, you want to be contacted, or you can be Jenny Jones from Montana that doesn't want anybody to contact her. She's just logging in to listen to the talk. So you can power network, or you can just put your feet up and listen to the content. But I would love all your listeners to join us. And I really just am so inspired by the collection of speakers and performers we have and sponsors we have this year that all believe that elevating diverse voices and promoting female leadership is, is a worthy investment. Okay, so that does bring me to one more question, because this is different. Usually you do this live, right? I usually do it live. I pre-produce yeah. every year, yeah. I could tell that there was some newness because I'm a speaker, but it's been, I spoke in a way that I have only spoken one other time. And this particular event was my first virtual event I have ever done. Yours is the second virtual event. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about what is different about this because for some people it'll be a little scary. I think it's awesome and amazing. I was so excited about being a part of it. So innovative. So can you share a little bit of that before I ask our last question? Yeah. So just in a nutshell, we partnered with a technology company that essentially once you log in, it's like you're in this virtual website where you can click and start shopping my vendor booths. Again, you can click on demand Here's Kanae's talk. Oh, I want to hear that five more times. I like it so much. And so it's like a main stage. So our speakers will come up on a main screen. And there's just all these features and technology that allows you, again, to show up with your avatar. So no one's showing up live. You don't have to look cute. You can look cute in your avatar picture, but you don't have to worry the whole time. I want them focused on the program, right? And, and then you, so you're virtually networking with folks. And then on the 9th, the live day, our speakers will all be there. So their chat rooms will be live and you can connect with them. And that's just on the exclusive 9th. But as I mentioned thereafter, I've got so many phenomenal nonprofit partners, sponsors that these are active groups like Bank of America and a new company called Awakish that are looking for speakers. They're looking for diversity kind of leaders, if you will. They're looking for talent for their company to grow. So there's just a lot of great opportunities. And most importantly, it's a day of inspiration and in, in coming together. It, wow. Yes. So... So yeah, I I really hope your listeners can join. And then we will, as I said, even after the month, we'll roll out certain parts of the segment on our social media 
and on our website so they can they can see you shine. Yay! <laughs> yes, and I'll I'll be I'll be there. So guys, come hang out with us. We this is going to be so innovative and so much fun and 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 elevating. Is that a word? Elevating. It is a word. Heck yeah! Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So yes. So let's be ele- let's elevate. I like elevating. So let's do that. Let's do that, and let's do it together. So before, so now I want to ask our last question because this is a really important one. So, so give us some thought and let us know what is the best advice you've ever received or the advice you wish somebody would have told you? Yeah. Wow. I think the, okay, a couple of things. I, I wish someone had told me to not be so sacrificial and so mm. I wish they had said the society is going to praise you and stroke you for being kind of small, kind of quiet, kind of easy to work with. And in my younger years and in my 20s, I really hung on to this martyr mentality, which you see for a lot of women in service. I wish someone had said, whoa, 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 red flag, be very careful with that. As you, you're going to lose parts of who you really are. And so I would tell women, you know, just to be careful, be mindful of those, whether it's in your life and your community that just love you because you do everything for everyone and do more for yourself. Give yourself come first. And so that nugget is what I live by now. It's on my desk in front of me. How does this benefit you? That core question. It's okay to ask that. And if it doesn't, it's okay to say, it actually doesn't. I'm going to have to pass. I'm unavailable. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, why did it take me? I'm 49 years old. Can I, I wish I could say I'm unavailable a million more times in my life. No, nope, I'm unavailable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm getting chills right now. That's so beautiful. <laughs> I want to be more available to myself. And so that's my nugget is, you know, Don't be unavailable to yourself. Don't continue to do everything for everyone. Put yourself first. Give yourself permission. Love on yourself. And that's kind of my my deepest mantra and piece of advice. Thank you. And can somebody just tweet that or, you know, Instagram it? Don't be unavailable to yourself. Thank you. I love that. That is so beautiful. Oh, so happy we got to hang out. It's just not enough time. I know we both have the next thing on our calendars to do. But thank you so much for hanging out with us. The pleasure has been all mine. I thank you, Kane. I thank your beautiful community. I keep watching and sharing in the light that you're bringing to the world. And I know we're going to connect and collaborate again too. So thank you. Oh yeah. Yes, we are. And thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. And I hope you took something away. I'd really like to know what you did take away. So connect with Shannon and uh, and I on Instagram and just share us in your stories and tell us what you learned from what we talked about today. If there's anything you're experiencing that we can go deeper on, I want to know. So I will see you next week. Love you, my prosperos. Thanks for listening all the way to the end, my prosperity pro. I want to stay connected with you. Here are four ways. Pick the one that works best for you if you want to stay connected with me. One, if you have any questions, I'd love to answer them. Send them to podcast at presidentiallifestyle.com. I'd love it if you would 
make a one or two minute audio message and attach it to an email. That'd be the easiest way for me to get it. Ask me anything about creating a life of meaning over money and I'll get you an answer. Remember the email address is podcast at presidentiallifestyle.com. Two, subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends because you guys might want to have a discussion about it, especially if they're a CEO who wants to shift from the old American dream to a life of meaning. Three, we try not to have any sponsors on this show unless they are truly in line with our values. I mean, really a good fit. So that means we fund this podcast ourselves. I'd like you to take a look at our resource page to see if there's any products or services that we recommend that are right for you. If not, no worries, maybe later. If so, please use our affiliate link to purchase. Thank you in advance for doing that. You are such an amazing person. Okay, four and last. If you want to know what's happening over here at Presidential Lifestyle, and you want us to email you the update, then go to presidentiallifestyle.com slash blog slash now. And you'll see the current updated blog for the week, but you'll also see a link to subscribe to that blog. We can email it to you if you like. That's presidentiallifestyle.com slash blog slash now. Don't worry, you don't have to remember that link or any links. They're all in the show notes. Oh, and I forgot to say, if you're enjoying this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review and tell us how much you're enjoying it. And now for the legalese. This podcast is not to replace professional counsel. The best advice is from a professional who knows you and your specific situation. The topics discussed in this podcast are general in nature and for informational or entertainment purposes only. We encourage you to meet with a professional that you can discuss your specific situation with. Whether you choose us or someone else, one-on-one counsel is important, whether it's a financial, therapeutic, legal, or other decision. So that's all for now. I'll see you next episode. And remember, you can have wealth in all of its forms. Believe it, and you'll soon see it.